This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week, I'm joined by our co-host, Alicia Jenkins, while I share with you a new deep dive into another case. By sharing a victim's story, we hope to put the pressure on you so that you can get involved and help make a difference. We present this show to expose the monsters lurking all around us. This is part four in the case of Susan Savakis, Michael Hughes, and Cheryl Camesso. It's also the final part, so if you haven't listened to parts one, two, and three, you've got to go back and listen to those so you know what's going on here. It's a long one. Let's jump right into it. Are you ready for part four? I have an update on that disturbing tea review (laughs) because... I was poking fun at it. I thought it was just funny and it was like three stars, you know, and it was funny that she said the disturbing tea. We explained that we don't say mountain and stuff with the tea and I just thought it was funny. She said disturbing. She changed it to a one star and updated that it's, for example, it's Martin, not Marin. So I was like, oh, that kind of like goes along with mountain, like so it's probably a name we say, like we say Mountain. You don't say Marin, you say Martin. 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 But it's like, I guess the T is not like Martin, Martin. just like Mountain. Yeah. Which we explained is like where we're from. I was sad she changed it to a one star. I was like, I was thankful for the three. I just thought it was funny. You thought it was disturbing. But I don't think people realize when they change the review or update it, it takes the review off and then puts it back up. So I see it come back up. And then she changed it a third time this week and also added on grammar needs attention as well. So at this point, I'm done listening to her. Oh, my gosh. I said I'd work. I said I'd work on my teas, but now I'm done. She obviously listens. Your teas must not bugger that much. I'm like. Okay, you don't have to put the knife in and then just keep turning it. I get the point. You do not like how I talk. Don't listen. I have seen your review updated multiple times. Thank you. Thank you. I get the point. You already changed it to a one star. There is no need to keep adding to the list of things you don't like. Yeah, we don't say, we, we don't say our T's. We that literally is don't. where we live. In some words. Like literally <laughs> we do. Like in literally we do. But Martin, mountain, um, mountain, fountain. <laughs> that is just where we're from. I mean, that's how we were taught. I know. I'm sorry. Taught, taught. We say it in yeah. taught. <laughs> we say some teas, <laughs> and you know what? I guess I'll work on my grammar too. But I'm doing the best I can. So if you like this show and you appreciate all the many, many hours we put in on top of our jobs, leave us a five star review. All right, here we are finally sort of bringing you the final part this case me and my mom are recording this in a couple sessions because this is going to be a long one so depending on how long this ends up being 
I'm going to release them both this week, but if this ends up being like two hours, we will be splitting it into two episodes. (laughs) (laughs) There's just, it's so long. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I have written about 50 pages of script and all of these episodes so it just keeps on going there's just stuff you don't want to cut out yeah it's just so convoluted with all the different names and places and crimes and he did all these things and it's like I don't even know how you can like really dissect it without apparently doing four million (laughs) and a half parts All right, well, let's get started then. In part three, we ended, we had just touched on the remains of everyone finding the remains of Cheryl Camesso. She was discovered in March of 1995, and that's the same year Franklin Floyd's kidnapping trial and conviction happen. At the time the human remains are discovered off an interstate in Florida, detectives do not know that this is Cheryl Camesso. After Terry Rickard found the human skull during his laboring job, the crew flags down a state police officer, and soon the St. Petersburg police are called in. The first detective to show is Bob Schock. He had joined the police force back in 1977 with a degree in criminal justice, and he's 39 at this time with two teenage daughters of his own. He becomes the lead investigator on this case. So the crime scene is taped off, and by examining the skull, Bob can tell these remains had probably been there for years. This area has to be dug out with a backhoe, and over the next week, more evidence is discovered. There are bones, hair, teeth, a bikini topped, a striped short sleeve t-shirt, and jewelry. All is collected for the investigation. The human remains need to be examined because at this moment of discovery, no one knows who these remains belong to. For now, Cheryl is just a Jane Doe to them. It's Dr. William Maples, a forensic anthropologist from the University of Florida, who examines the remains at the medical examiner's office. It's April 4, 1995, that his report comes out. The skull clearly belongs to a woman. There are two small holes at the base of her skull, telling the doctor a story. These remains belong to someone who had been murdered, shot to death, execution style. Dr. Maples can also see this Jane Doe had been beaten severely. There are fractures on the facial structure of the skull. He determines the remains are that of a white female somewhere between the ages of 16 and 22. Who is Cheryl again? Cheryl is the girl who worked with Sharon at the Mons Venus Strip Club in Tampa, Florida. Oh, She drove the red Corvette. Yeah, I got confused because I was thinking Sharon, Cheryl. um, Yeah, I know. There's literally five million names and like five million crimes that Franklin committed. So I don't blame you. But yes, Cheryl from the Mons Venus. So with all of that information, Bob Schock and Detective Mark Desparo start looking into missing persons reports for women around the St. Petersburg, Florida area. On top of this, Mark is looking into clothing manufacturers trying to connect the puzzle pieces of the clothing found with the Jane Doe. The labels on the clothes can help him. He was able to make calls and give these clothing numbers. So the manufacturers of some particular items had gone out of business around 10 years earlier. There were pants he tracks down separately. They were knockoffs of a bigger name brand, and Mark is told these pants wouldn't be able to be found in stores at the time he's calling. 
After about eight weeks go by, the leads taper off. It's just another unsolved mystery among many others the department is investigating. A year goes by, and on July 16, 1996, Bob Schock's office phone is ringing. He picks it up and is startled to hear what this phone call is about. It's the FBI Tampa field office. They had come across some photographs, and they tell Bob he might have interest in these photos regarding the Jane Doe of I-275. Of course, he's interested. Any lead at this point could be helpful. So he asked to meet the very next day. It's July 17th when Bob pulls into a parking lot where the FBI and Tampa detectives meet him. The photos we discussed at the end of part three, discovered during Franklin's kidnapping trial, are what is handed over to Bob and he starts flipping through them. Again, these photos are not easy to look at. Remember, Fitzpatrick had separated the photos into four separate groups. The ones handed to Bob Shock are those of Cheryl Camesso. Bob immediately notices the clothes around Cheryl's neck, a white bikini top, and a striped t-shirt. Could this be the break he needed? It seems like such a far stretch. He would have to be so lucky to have these photos connect to his Jane Doe case. But that clothing, he swears it's the same. After the photos had been discovered a year prior, Fitzpatrick had sent them out to different offices in Tampa. He knew Franklin and Sharon had been living there, and he had a strong suspicion that whatever happened to the girl in these photos happened in Florida. Fitzpatrick had then taken a step back from looking into Franklin Floyd. Throughout 1995 and early 1996, he had focused on the Oklahoma City bombing case, but recently he had just come back to Franklin and Sharon because he had never stopped wondering where Sharon came from. Once Bob is in possession of these disturbing photos, he is given Fitzpatrick's information. He makes the call and the two men discuss the case they're working on. He makes the call and the two men discuss the case. As shocked as Bob is, that's how Fitzpatrick feels. Could he really connect Franklin to another homicide case? Like how convoluted could Franklin's case be and how evil is he? The FBI takes their files on Franklin and shares them with Bob Shock. The FBI takes their files on Franklin and shares them with Bob Shock, who starts investigating Franklin's ties to his Jane Doe. Up till this point, Bob and Mark had only looked into the missing person reports dating back to 1990. This would not have showed them the missing persons report for Cheryl Camesso, because 1990 is when Sharon died. They had lived in Tampa during 1988 and 1989. The reason they only look back to 1990 is because the remains are discovered in 1995 and the medical examiner had thought the remains were only a few years old. But now that there is this possible tie between Franklin and the I-275 Jane Doe, they expand their search to earlier years. Tampa's missing persons report do not match anything Bob and Mark need to connect this case. So they go nearby to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's, and there are two missing persons reports here that could have fit the bill. One is quickly eliminated, leaving them with the other report. It's a missing persons report for Cheryl and Camesso. She was 19 years old when she had been reported in June of 1989. By the time this report was made, Cheryl hadn't been seen for two months since April of 1989. Cheryl's height and weight matched the Jane Doe, and other descriptions of her could be seen in the photos connected to Franklin Floyd. 
The pictures are put side by side with Cheryl's driver's license, and it looks to be the same woman. So dental records are requested, and Bob receives x-rays. These are compared to the medical examiner's records of Jane Doe's teeth, but the conclusion is inconclusive. So now a phone call is made to John Camesso, asking if he has additional dental records for his missing daughter, Cheryl. Her mom, Louise, is now living in New York, and she has them. Bob is connected with her, and she agrees to send the photos. With these, the medical examiner's office is now able to make a positive identification. The remains of the I-275 Jane Doe belong to Cheryl and Camesso. Bob has to make the dreaded phone call, notifying her family that she has been found. Cheryl was murdered. Of course, with the information known about Franklin Floyd and his creepy behavior in Tampa and his obsession with Cheryl in 1989, detectives believe he is the one who killed her. In March of 1997, Bob Schock and Mark DeZaro traveled to Oklahoma City to report on what they had found during their investigation of the murder. They are meeting with Joe Fitzpatrick, Mark Yancey, and Ed Cumega, along with others who had worked on Michael Hughes' kidnapping case. Hearts are breaking as detectives learn even more about Sharon Marshall's life with Franklin Floyd and just how sick he really was. After leaving Tampa, Florida, we know Sharon and Franklin marry in New Orleans on June 15, 1989. Bob explains that the only plausible reason for this is because Sharon was aware that Franklin murdered her friend Cheryl, and he didn't want Sharon to testify against him if he were, if he were to be arrested. Yeah, that was one reason. Yeah. The other one says he's just a sicko. <laughs> Probably. But yeah, when it comes to testifying, your wife cannot be, or like your spouse, cannot be testified, like pressured to testify against you, but they can like testify against you if they want, right? I think so. That's what I thought was funny about it. Like, did he think your spouse can't testify against you at all? Or did he just not want the pressure put on her? Because it's like, well... If you went to court for the murder, she actually can and probably will testify against you. But would she? Maybe not. So it's during this time in Louisiana that a man's social security number is stolen by Franklin Floyd. So while they're there getting married all that time in New Orleans, they take the identity of Clarence Hughes. And this is also where Sharon gives birth to her third and final child, a little girl. Detectives aren't sure at this time who the baby is. Soon after this, Franklin and Sharon make it to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wait, so they had the third baby. Did they keep it? Keep her? No. Okay. So there's a first baby said to be a boy, and then the second baby, a boy, Michael, who they do keep. Right. And the third baby who is given up for adoption, but that's about all they know at this point. Okay. So detectives were able to see that Sharon was in a really dark place during her time in Tulsa and just basically in her life ever since Franklin had dragged her to Florida. She never wanted to dance for a career and she lost her lust for life and her passion for knowledge. But after meeting her boyfriend, Kevin Brown, there in Tulsa, she could finally see a light at the end of the tunnel. It was like Sharon finally thought she might get away from her captor. She was starting to get her personality back. She's reading books and thirsting for knowledge. She's really finding herself again. 
But when Franklin finds out about Sharon's plan to run from him with Kevin, he kills her. Could they prove right then in that moment that Franklin had murdered his legal wife, the girl he raised as his daughter? No, but it was clear this is what happened. Detectives come to the conclusion that Franklin is a pedophile. He had been in trouble multiple times for this specific thing, and it's believed he kidnapped Sharon as a young girl. So when Sharon told Heather at the Mons Venus strip club back in Tampa that her dad had sexually abused her as a child, but it was no longer going on, she probably was not lying. It is believed that as Sharon grew older, Franklin lost interest in her and he has no reason for her anymore. Again, he's a disgusting pedophile. So when Sharon's an adult, her purpose to him was to work and support him and simply pay for his life. But detectives come to the conclusion that Franklin becomes really obsessed with Michael during this time after she has him. So it didn't matter to him by the time they're in Oklahoma if Sharon lives or dies. Franklin killed Cheryl back in Florida because of his anger surrounding the situation where she calls into the state and reports Sharon for making more money than reported and their state checks are stopped. He also didn't kill her quickly. She was tortured. Franklin captured her, abused her, burned her, and beat her. Franklin wanted to degrade Cheryl before he took a 22 and shot her two times in the back of the head. It's during the same trip to Oklahoma that Bob and Mark go to the Oklahoma City County Jail to interrogate Franklin Floyd on March 25, 1997. He comes in rambling because Franklin loves nothing more than talking about himself. Remember, he's a true narcissist. He tries to defend himself during his kidnapping trial. He is literally obsessed with him. And the detectives had been told by Fitzpatrick that if they let him just talk, he won't shut down. So immediately upon coming face to face with detectives, Franklin talks for an hour straight about how his sister is crazy and he knows she sent them here and she's so rude, blah, blah, blah. Remember, his sister is the one who cried on the phone to Fitzpatrick, relaying the things Franklin told her about murdering Michael. Anyway, by the time Franklin shuts up about himself, Bob asks about Cheryl Camesso. Franklin immediately denies any involvement, so they slide a picture of Cheryl over to Franklin, and he says the girl could have been one of Sharon's friends. The detectives are like, oh yeah, Sharon is your daughter, right? But Franklin says no, admitting that Sharon isn't his daughter, he just raised her. He talks about how he raised Sharon a good girl, but she became bad when she got into drugs and dancing, leaving out the fact that he forced her into all of this. He goes on to say the people Sharon knew in Florida were shady and weird, which is funny coming from the weirdest, creepiest person the detectives had ever sat in front of. <laughs> like, you're shady and weird. I know. Franklin goes on to try and say that the reason they leave Florida is because Sharon stole money from those shady people, and that's why they changed their names. Big lie, obviously. So after a frustrating conversation with Franklin rambling on about himself and lying over and over, Bob asks, did you kill Cheryl Camesso? But of course, Franklin says no. Wait, at this time, though, they knew that um, Sharon was his wife, too? Yes, they know Sharon's his wife, but that he raised her 
as his daughter. Okay. So they get nowhere with him during this interrogation. And the next day, they make a visit to an inmate in the federal prison located in Lexington, Oklahoma. It's a man, only 18 years old, Alan Dwight Dowdy. Alan tells them that Franklin talked about how he buried a body. He also talked about hitting his wife in the head and leaving her on the side of the highway. Another time, he says he ran his wife down in a car. He didn't seem to care about her. He just cared about that kid, Michael. He told the inmate he threw Michael off a bridge and listened to him scream until he hit the water. Franklin had also told Alan that he hated strippers and people involved in pornography. Clearly, Franklin is a big BSer because he is a pedophile rapist who forced Sharon into sex work and stripping. He's literally grabbing her nipples in front of other people, telling them his daughter's going to be a porn star. But in prison, he's <laughs> saying he hates pornography. Did you have to bring that up again? I know. It's absolutely disgusting. But it's just like mind blowing how like people can just lie straight to people's faces. Yeah, there's lots of people out there that are good at it. It's crazy to me. So even Alan knew that Franklin was full of it. He just figured most of those stories was Franklin making stuff up because he swore Franklin never stopped talking about himself. Bob and Mark go back to Franklin for a second interview now. Again, he's making stuff up, changing stories, just talking in circles. Finally, though, Franklin admits to knowing Cheryl Camesso. Still, he never admitted to the murder. But they don't need his confession. They have a pretty good case against him. And on top of everything, they are able to match the fabric on a sofa that had been in Franklin's Florida trailer, trailer, trailer to the fabric on the couch Cheryl is pictured on in those brutal photos. So it seems that even though Franklin was convicted in the kidnapping of Michael Hughes, he was still in the Oklahoma City County Jail because there had been state charges in Oklahoma brought against him for the kidnapping. This part was confusing to me, but it seems like he was like federally convicted on kidnapping charges and then Oklahoma State also brought kidnapping charges. I don't know if that's to get him like more time I don't know. I didn't really understand that. But so he's convicted. But then to the state charges, he agrees to plead guilty because he hated the county jail. And by pleading guilty, he would be sent to the federal prison in Atlanta. He had served time there before from 1971 to 1972. So at about this same time he's pleading guilty, a grand jury is gathered by Chief Assistant State Attorney for the Sixth Judicial Circuit, Bruce Barlett, in Pinellas County, Florida. On November 12, 1997, the grand jury indicts Franklin Floyd for the first-degree murder of Cheryl Camesso. The following week, Bob and Mark go to meet Franklin for a third interrogation. Franklin doesn't know that he has been indicted on murder charges, and when the detectives first arrive, he, of course, is not admitting to knowing anything about Cheryl's death. Once he is made aware of the charges being brought against him, he goes berserk. As the two men go to walk out of the interrogation room, Franklin is still screaming at them. He's cursing at them. He's literally freaking out. Bob calmly just looks back and says, quote, Mr. Floyd, be informed that you are under arrest for the murder of Cheryl Ann Camesso. Like, hallelujah. <laughs> As he should be. Yes. So Franklin isn't taken to the Pinellas County Jail in Florida until 1999. 
Now he will await murder charges here as his trial creeps closer. But in 2001, Franklin's lawyers have him deemed mentally incompetent to stand trial. What's crazy is Franklin doesn't agree with his public defenders who say he is schizophrenic and has received psychiatric care before, or the two out of three doctors that evaluate him and say he's not competent. Franklin fights against this hard, saying he is not crazy and he can stand trial. It's Judge Nancy Lay who has the final decision, and after Franklin writes her multiple rambling letters, she questions his mental state as well. She rules him incompetent in March 2001, which is always so frustrating. It's just like when Lori Daybell got deemed incompetent because then it just then everything just sits still. Oh, I know. I was going to say that too. I just hate that insanity plea. Yeah. Well, and it's like, I think when they're incompetent, they can't even plead insane because like nothing concludes still when they're deemed incompetent. They just simply have to wait until they're competent to go to trial. But it's like, okay, you still did it. You still like, even though you're crazy, you still did it. Yeah. Murderers have got to be crazy to do that, right? We always say that. If you kill someone, you're crazy. Right. So it's like, you still <laughs> got to be... That's just a fact. Like, take the consequences. Totally. And they, like, he obviously knew right from wrong. I think the insanity plea really only holds up when the person can prove they did not understand the difference between right and wrong in the moment that it happened. So, you know, right now they're just stuck still and Bob and Mark are super annoyed. He is not crazy to them. He's simply evil. It's found by detectives that while serving time, Franklin is able to obtain child pornography magazines. Some titles are barely legal and barely 18. I guess those sound like not child pornography but they said they were child pornography they probably have those names to seem like they're not isn't that gross yes even barely legal like if you're buying barely legal you're you're tinkering the line i mean how how do these people get all this stuff like i'm in prison no idea because like is it the (laughs) is it the guards like do they bribe the guards i i don't see inmates having a ton of money to bribe people to bring stuff I have zero clue. Let us know if you've been in the prison system. Like, like their visitors sneak it in? Like, are they not checking them well enough? I know. It's stupid. I guess write to us if you have been in prison and you know how things are snuck in. How are pornographic magazines and drugs brought into the prisons? Yeah. So what's really gross is he would cut out the pictures of private parts and keep them in albums that like he made of his own and then they were always getting confiscated during prison searches that's how we know he had all this stuff oh geez by july of 2001 bob and mark are able to prove that franklin was manipulating and messing with his lawyers and judge lay more psychiatric evaluations are done and in july of 2001 judge lay takes her ruling back he is competent to stand trial but still another year has to pass by by september 9th 2002 the trial for the murder of cheryl camesso begins Witnesses who knew Franklin, a.k.a. Warren Marshall, testified over the course of the next nine days. 
Jennifer Fisher, Carrie Strugel, and many others described Franklin as crazy, unhinged, and dangerous. Joe Fitzpatrick also testifies for the prosecution. By this point, he is retired from the FBI, but still is working as a private investigator, and he is still highly committed to Sharon Marshall and finding her true identity. Regardless of the defense basically saying there is no evidence against Franklin in the murder case, the jurors see right through it. The photos of Cheryl's torture were found in a manila envelope taped underneath the old truck of James Davis, the principal Franklin tied up and stole the truck from. The sofa in the pictures matched a sofa Franklin had in his Florida trailer home, and there was an abundance of witness testimony. Why were those pictures taped up under his truck? I'm not sure. I don't know if he planned to go back for them when he dropped the truck off at the Wonder Bread factory. I have no idea. It's kind of an odd place to keep up. I, I, I honestly have no idea. Only Franklin knows, I guess. <laughs> but it is odd. I guess they were like a, a really important possession to him. Yeah, but then he doesn't take them when he leaves the truck. Which it is right after he takes Michael. So I don't know if he was just like frantic and like not thinking, but it's very strange. Mm-hmm. So once both sides rest and the trial concludes, the jurors head to a private room to deliberate. It takes them four hours to find Franklin Delano Floyd guilty of first-degree murder on September 28, 2002. Franklin stands up, yelling to the jury, Look at me in the face. I was framed. The FBI planted those pictures under the truck. But everyone just rolls their eyes and ignores him. They know a monster is being exposed and a family is finally getting justice although that could never bring back the daughter they loved and lost. At his sentencing, Franklin makes a statement for over an hour. There he goes again, obsessing over himself and rambling on about his life. I'm sure the jury is sick of him, and when they go back to decide his punishment, they only take one hour. They decide Franklin will receive the death penalty via lethal injection. Well, I do not feel bad about that. No. I always say my stance is I'm not pro-death penalty (laughs) because of just like obviously wrongful convictions, but I'm never unhappy when I know for a fact their crimes warrant it and they really did them. So I'm happy with that sentence as well. And about a year and a half later in 2003, Franklin is taken to death row at a maximum security prison. So Franklin Floyd has now been convicted of Michael Hughes' kidnapping and Cheryl Camesso's murder. He is still suspected of murdering Michael, kidnapping, sexually abusing, and murdering Sharon Marshall, a.k.a. Suzanne, but things sit still for a while after the murder trial. So who is Franklin? I mean, we know he's a sicko, a pedophile, and a dangerous predator, but where did he come from, and what could have made him into the evil man he became? Franklin is the youngest child of Thomas H. Floyd and Della Floyd. He had been born June 17, 1943 in Barnesville, Georgia. Franklin's dad was an abusive alcoholic. His family lived in fear of their father, so it was bittersweet to them when he dies of liver and kidney failure by the age of 32 in June of 1944. Oh, wow. That is very young. Yeah. Yeah, 32. That's only like five years older than me. Liver and kidney failure. Dang. I mean, he must have drank a lot. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
And I think he did and had like a very heavy problem with it, unfortunately. So Della, she's only 29 years old when her husband dies. She's young, she has no money, and she felt like she had little to no support as she navigates caring for her kids as a newly single mother. She moves in with her mom for over a year until she until her mom eventually kicks Della out. It just was not working for everyone. This is when Della contacts the welfare system, asking them to take in her children, and they tell her she should put her kids into the Baptist Children's Home. This is an orphanage ran by church and volunteer funds. On January 11, 1946, after Della had written a letter explaining why she could no longer care for her kids, the home lets her know they have been accepted. Della is made aware at this time that if she goes forward with this, her kids will be orphans of the home and she will no longer have any parental right to them. She will be allowed to see them one time every three months. And like... I do not want this to come off judgmental because I understand there are people in situations where you can't care for your kids, but I I just do not think it is better off for a kid to become an orphan than to like struggle with a parent if that parent loves them. I know. I was going to say it's too bad that, that she didn't have more assistance, like being a widow. Yeah. And like, like trying to raise the kids, you know. Yeah. I just... It, like, makes me feel so sad to think of a kid, like, all of her kids. Like, you spent all this time with your mom, and then... And, like, where was family? Like, she didn't have family to help out, or couldn't split them up, or... Her mom kicked her out, and then it sounds like they just didn't want to help from there. Mm. You know, obviously, this is a choice made in desperation. I, like, can't really speak for her. I could never do it and I think it's like so sad for the kids who like know her to like be stripped away from their mom even I don't know I think it's even it even hurts me for the kids when they're taken from their parents and should be like I'm glad they are but that's like still traumatic because kids love their parents regardless which is so sad oh yeah and so it's just like that is just trauma And especially to just be given. Like, I'm sorry, but you're being given. Because Della's oldest children are 13 and 11. So she has a sit-down talk with them. And she does tell them she loves them so much but has no choice because she can't feed them or give them clothes. Franklin, he's only two years old when he enters the home. So while I'm sure his, like, he had trouble adjusting, he didn't remember ever being with his mom like the older kids did yeah like 13 and 11 I mean that's old you would totally know what's going on yeah so very sad and the matrons running this home were you guessed it they were cruel and abusive husbands and wives would take on the jobs of caring for children and unfortunately were not often able to emotionally nurture them the orphans of these homes were mentally emotionally and physically abused Rules were strict, the kids were worked hard in fields when they weren't attending school or church, and love was not given freely. Della did try to visit her kids just weeks after dropping them off. And so, like, from what I read, it seems that she was sad, and I do feel for her too. I don't think it benefited her kids to come to this orphanage, but I'm assuming she regrets this decision and then, and that she had made it in desperation. So the thought of 
like having that regret and then you actually can't do anything to see your kids would be like really unbearable. Oh yeah. The home denies Della to visit more than one to two times per year, regardless of her constant letters asking for more visitation. They actually asked Della to leave her children alone because they're doing fine. This is obviously not true considering the abuse and emotional neglect they were experiencing within the home. Franklin was not doing well at all as the years go on. He was picked on consistently, and Franklin says that at six years old, he was taken to the woods by a group of boys older than him, and out there, he was raped. This is Franklin's recount of his experience, so I guess take it with a grain of salt. But if it is true, sexual abuse as a child can trigger some sexual deviance or like later in life, especially where he continues to be abused and neglected and isn't taught how to love. I'm sure these matrons are not having the sex talk about safe sex or boundaries or loving relationships. So all of that mixed with being raped as a child leads him down obviously this path of like not a very healthy sexual paths path yeah probably causes some mental illness and you know like it is known that sexual abuse can be and well any abuse physical emotional sexual it can be passed on generationally so when it happens to you as a kid it sadly you are more likely to pass it down not that those people will because most people you know like make that conscious effort to like hail from those things but when they're not taught how it can just like easily be passed generation to generation so unfortunately franklin is constantly getting into trouble whippings and beatings are punishments for his behavior his hand was once placed into boiling water after he is caught masturbating Franklin isn't the only kid here being abused and experiencing harsh punishments. All of the orphans were being damaged within this home. And in 1965, the home is taken to juvenile court regarding the punishments. It is ruled that whipping with a leather strap is considered brutality and would not be allowed anymore. So that's somewhat good that the abuse was recognized, I guess, and a court ruled that brutal physical punishment could not continue in the home. But this comes six years after Franklin leaves the home. He moves out in 1959 after he has this um, little stint where he runs out of the home. He breaks into a random home and steals food. So the home doesn't want to deal with him anymore. They call his sister Dorothy over in South Carolina and tell her he would have to come there if he doesn't want to be prosecuted for breaking in and stealing. Little reminder here, Dorothy is, again, the sister who calls about Franklin's confession to her about Michael's murder. Her husband thinks Franklin is a straight nightmare and kicks him out within a few weeks. On July 11, 1959, Franklin joins the military. He actually needed permission from a parent, so he tracks his mom down. She's in Indianapolis, Indiana, and he was upset to find Della working as a sex worker. She agrees to sign papers for him to join the military, and off he goes. She must have not been having a very good life, even, you know, probably when she gave those kids away. Yeah. Well, she was obviously struggling when she gives them away and then... Continues to. Yeah. Is obviously continuing to struggle and does... Starts getting into this work to get money. And sadly, all these years later, she's still stuck within that. 
So Della agrees to sign the papers for him to join the military and off he goes. But just five months after he enrolls, the U.S. Army kicks him out for forging his enlistment papers. He was underage. So I'm not sure like if at 18 or something you still needed like a parent's signature. I have absolutely zero idea how enlistment goes. But whatever the case, he lied about being older than he was. This is when he basically starts into a life of crime. He has nothing, he has no one, and by this point, he had gotten into trouble so often and severed so many ties, no one trusted him anymore, including his siblings. In February of 1960, he is arrested in L.A. He had broken into a store and tried to get into a gun case. The police head to the store, sirens blaring, and when they arrive, things get intense. Gunfire starts. Franklin shooting at the police, police shooting back at him. Franklin loses his battle when he is shot in the stomach. An ambulance rushes him to the hospital where he undergoes surgery and makes it out alive. But now he has to spend time in the youth institution for a little more than a year. So, like, before he's 18... He is in a shootout with police and shot in the stomach. So he's just like you can tell, like when I said he kind of had no chance, he really was just not doing good. I was wondering how old he was by this time trying to get in to the army, probably like 16 or. Yeah, let's see. 1959 and he was born in. I have to go back a little. He was born in 1943 1943 and 59 so yeah 16 okay yeah so 16 when he tries to join the military and then by the next year 17 he's shot in the stomach by police so in 1961 he violates his parole by traveling to alaska and he's arrested again he's free come early 1962 But he moves back to his old stomping grounds in Georgia, nearby the orphanage where he grew up. One month later, in June, is when Franklin kidnaps and rapes the four-year-old girl. She is in a bowling alley, and he just straight up leads her outside, taking her with the intent to assault her in a nearby wooded area. Trigger warning here. So when the little girl is found, she is taken to a hospital to be examined. Both semen and bite marks are found on her vagina and the surrounding areas. So he's straight trash. Disgusting. I just, I just don't have that brain. I just don't get why that would, people need to do that. No, it like makes my body hurt to even like say it, that that happened. It's so sad. So he's disgusting. I might have felt bad for his childhood, but from here on out, hate him from this point in his life forward. And um, the kidnapping charge in this case, they end up dropping it. But Franklin is convicted of child molestation on July 31st. He is sent sentenced to 10 to 20 years and is taken to the Reedsville State Prison to serve his time. We know he was here for about 10 years before he is let out. So while he's there, he gets psych evaluations done during this time, and he's moved to the Milledgeville State Hospital on November in November of 1962. By early 1963, Franklin straight up escapes. Officers were driving Franklin to an eye appointment, and he takes over. He steals the car and runs off. He needs money, though, so he makes a stop at the Citizens Southern Bank, 
He gets just over $800, but thankfully is detained that same day, admitting that he robbed this bank. So now he has to go to court for the bank robbery. And by July 12, 1963, he gets 12 years and is sent to Ohio to serve his time. Within a couple months, he tries to escape again with some fellow inmates. They hotwire a vehicle on the prison grounds and then try to crash it through a gate, but they don't get too far because it literally just crashes into the gate and the vehicle stops. So he gets another charge and he pleads guilty to attempted escape and destruction of government property. Another five years is tacked onto his sentence and he is transferred to a prison in Pennsylvania. So at this point, you would think he's going to serve a lot more than the 10 to 20 years he had gotten for the child molestation, but he's serving that bank robbery like alongside his child molestation charge. And then apparently he doesn't get a bunch of time tacked on, like they say, for this other escape. The prison he goes to in Pennsylvania is a maximum security prison in Lewisburg. The inmates here have no tolerance for his child molestation charge. Many of them were sexually abused themselves as children, or they had children of their own. This was not going well for him. He is beaten and raped super often. Honestly, he deserves it after what he did to that four-year-old. I could care less. And it sucks for him. So he climbs to the top of a prison building at one point, threatening to jump off. Unfortunately, officers talk him off the ledge and he comes down. He continues serving his time, but is transferred in 1964 to Missouri after more breakdowns following more beatings and assaults. And from here, he goes to Illinois in 1965. His time doesn't get easier. He is finding that most prisons would be hell for him when fellow inmates find out about his charges involving a child. So he ultimately submits to a man who Matt Birkbeck explains in his book as a daddy. Basically, I think he, he is serving this daddy sexually and in whatever other ways the daddy might want. Oh my gosh. And then the daddy protects him. Prison's just prison. another world, isn't it? It really is. And I mean... It would be so scary to be in there. And if people aren't in there for like violent crimes and crimes against children, then I feel for them. But the ones that are already like, yeah, get your get your punishment. Especially after we heard what Franklin did to that four year old. It's just like, well, I'm glad you were having a absolutely miserable time. Unfortunately, it didn't change anything because he obviously goes on to kidnap another little girl later in his life. I mean, how do they just keep getting out? They just keep getting out, reoffending, going back in, getting out. I know. Like, we've heard far too many stories where this is always happening. I swear people have gotten more time for smoking weed than they have gotten for these things. Even still to this day, people get bad sentences. Like, we talked about that one where that guy killed his baby, his three-month-old baby, and he got three months here in Rigby, Idaho. Oh, yeah. By February of 1968, Franklin circles back around to the Reedsville State Prison where he will finish out his time. 
Convicts here also did not appreciate his assault on the four-year-old and they punish him for it. It's during these years that Franklin becomes friends with David Dial. This is his prison friend from the beginning of part one, the friend who had bailed him out before he goes on the run as a fugitive, and it's the same friend who helped him when he was on the run for the kidnapping of Michael. By November of 1971, Franklin is paroled, but he has to go to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta to finish out his time for his escape charges in Ohio. One year later, he is paroled in 1972 and sent to a halfway house for a few months. He is completely free by January of 1973. But he can't even last a month without being a total dirtbag because he is at it once again on January 27th. He pretends to have a gun, walking up to a woman at a gas station and pressing his hand into her back. He's like, do what I say. So he tells her to get into her car. He hops in the passenger side, and as she drives away, he starts assaulting her. He's slapping her and calling her a bitch, but she's like, yeah, no, I'm not doing this. She stops the car, jumps out, and runs for her life. Franklin is arrested a couple weeks later, oh, well, not even a couple weeks, a couple days later, on February 2nd, 1973, for attempted kidnapping of this woman. This is when David pays Franklin's $3,000 bond. But when his court date in July comes and goes, it's clear Franklin won't be showing up. This is the start of that 17-year run as a fugitive. We know two years later he has Sharon enrolled in elementary school. So how does it come to that? We've basically covered Franklin's entire life from the time he's born to the time he is sentenced to death for Cheryl Camesso's murder. But there's this little gap, just over a year, where he is able to kidnap a little girl named Suzanne and escape with her for almost two decades. Unfortunately, more than a decade will pass from the time Franklin is sentenced to death till the time Sharon Marshall's true identity is found and the puzzle of her story can be completed. Matt Birkbeck, who wrote the book A Beautiful Child, takes the project on in about 2004 after he's sent information on the case. He starts working closely with Joe Fitzpatrick, and when the book concludes, what I've told you so far was all that detectives and the world knew about a little girl named Suzanne and the horror she endured under the care of Franklin Floyd. Matt doesn't write his second book, Finding Sharon, until many years later. He decided to go with that title because that is the main name people know this woman as, Sharon Marshall. She spent the majority of her life under this alias. So regardless of Franklin being in prison for life because of the kidnapping and now being sentenced to death row because of the murder, he refuses to give up exactly how he kidnapped Suzanne. I don't know if he just gets some sort of sick pleasure out of knowing he's the only one with answers. It's like it's his way to continue tormenting people from behind bars. He's just annoying. He's disturbed. Definitely. That's for sure. That is for sure. Throughout the years, multiple people had called in tips, thinking they may have the missing link to finding Suzanne. One of these tips is called in by Shelley Denman, who lived in Kansas City, Missouri. Shelley was married into the Denman family, and it was her husband Robert's family members who were missing. His sister Frida and her, four, and her kids, one a four-year-old girl, Sherry Lynn, and the other a 10-month-old boy named Michael. Frida was married to a man named Michael Johnson. 
The family had gone missing in December of 1974, many years before Shelley married into the family, but she was always curious about what happened. It was Jerry Nance with the Center of Missing and Exploited Children who starts helping Shelley. Around 2002, mitochondrial DNA was being tested. DNA tech is getting better and better around this time. Cold cases are benefiting greatly from all the testing going on, and things are getting solved. The family isn't even reported missing until March of 1975, when the landlord finally realizes he isn't getting rent from these people living in the home he owns. And he goes to the home, but he can't find them anywhere. Unfortunately, the search for Frida and her family ends soon. The case was closed just a couple months later because police find out her hubby was a con man. His real name was not Michael Johnson. He was Henry Harvinson, and he's wanted by the FBI. The Independence Police there in Missouri figure he is on the run with his family which is a little weird for an assumption because dried blood is found inside the home matching Frida's blood type. It's type O, and there's blood on the chair and also on woman's pants in the bedroom. The closet was filled with woman's clothing, but it seems all the men's clothing and children's clothing were gone from the home. So did Henry take his kids and run after murdering his wife? That's what it seems like to Shelley. So it's Henry, a.k.a. Franklin. This is a man named Henry Harvison, but a.k.a. Michael Johnson, who is this dude that marries this woman named Frida. It's actually not Franklin, though. Oh. And Frida didn't have a clue that her husband was a con or the fact he is a violent criminal. He's arrested a few times through their marriage, which ends up giving her some insight into him. But you've got to remember, these people are usually great manipulators. I'm sure he had all sorts of stories surrounding his arrests. And his second arrest comes when the couple is living in Alabama with their daughter. After he is released, they move to Missouri. Frida does leave him at one point because he is abusing her and he keeps going to prison. But she goes back with him when he threatens to kill her if she stays away. Unfortunately, we know the statistics on domestic violence, and it takes most abused women seven times to finally leave their abuser for good. It was only three months after she tells a friend she was scared of her husband that the family is last seen. So these little connections start getting made, right? And I'm going to try and explain it in a very concise way, but... It might be hard to follow, so ask questions if you need, but okay, we're kind of jumping to the prison system for a minute. Basically, within the prison system, there is this church started by an inmate named Harry Torino. It's called the Church of the New Song. He starts wanting the same rights that the other recognized religions practice, like the same rights that the other religions in the prisons have. So he petitions for the church to become official. The prison officials are against this, and they say absolutely not. They shut it down real quick and transfer Torino to another prison. However, he continues to preach about his church and spread the word, converting a large group of inmates. He wins his battle for his church when a district judge rolls in his favor and makes the church a recognized religion within the prison system. Soon, Torino goes to the prison in Atlanta and holds his first service there. Over 600 inmates gather for this. However, the Federal Bureau of Prisons had continued to fight against Torino, and eventually the church is taken down within the prison system. 
He did gain a large enough following, though, that he's able to start up the religion outside of the prison. They open an office in Iowa, and they have these houses where inmates can stay when released from prison. So what does all of this have to do with the missing family of Shelley Denman or Franklin Floyd and Sharon Marshall? Well, as Shelley Denman looks into the disappearance of Frida's family, the Church of the New Song gives her some insight into Henry's time in prison. Remember, he had been arrested multiple times throughout his marriage with Frida. He had connections to this church and some of the members during his time behind bars. He had gotten close with a man named John Price. John Price was also a member of this church and took on a role in it outside of the prison as well. Shelley's theory is that maybe Henry and Franklin meet in prison. When Matt Birkbeck meets with Franklin in early 2004, Franklin did admit to knowing Henry, although he didn't want to discuss it further, of course. So through investigation, prison records indicate that the two did not spend time in the same prison during the time periods they're there, so they don't meet each other while incarcerated. But it's found that Franklin was in in the Atlanta prison when the Church of the New Song had its first meeting there. Franklin knew the founder, Torino, and he was also connected to John Price. So John is the link between Franklin and Henry. Records show that John and Franklin were serving time in the Atlanta prison at the same time. And for his connection to Henry, a letter is found written from John to Henry sent from the P.O. box of the Church of the New Song's office. Through more investigation, everyone with their eye on this theory thinks that Henry and Franklin could have met in Chicago because they are both placed around this area during the same time. So could the little girl Franklin raised as Sharon Marshall really be Henry's little girl, Sherry Lynn? On top of the men's connections to each other, the timelines also match up. Sherry and her family were last seen in December of 1974, and by 1975, Franklin pops up, enrolling a little girl he called Suzanne Davis in elementary school. Shelley had made the discovery of Sherry, not Shelley, hold on, oh yeah, it is Shelley. I got confused between Shelley and Sherry. (laughs) All right, Shelley is the aunt, Sherry is the four-year-old daughter that went missing with her mom and brother and dad. Shelley had made the discovery of Sharon Marshall on the Doe Network website after hitting a dead end in her investigation around 2003, which side note, the way the Doe Network was founded is pretty interesting. A woman named Jennifer Mara creates this website in 1999. She just has a passion for looking into these unsolved identities, so she starts posting photos along with some information on, you know, these Jane Doe's deaths. And soon after she publishes the website, there's an online chat group focused on cold cases that takes big interest in her work. When she steps away from the website, the cold case group takes it on and it just happens to become a huge resource in solving cold cases, which is still a really big resource today. So that's pretty cool. It is. Good thing we have passionate people out there. Exactly. So this is how Shelley comes across the photo of Sharon Marshall sitting on Franklin Floyd's lap. There is a resemblance to the photos she has of Sherry Lynn. Plus, Sharon ends up naming her son Michael. This was Sherry's brother's name, named after Sherry's dad, Michael Johnson, which was really an alias, but Sherry and Frida and all of them don't know that. Sharon was kidnapped by a con man. Henry is a con man. There were just so many connections. 
Sharon's profile on the Doe Network stands out to Shelly. So she contacts Jerry Nance back at the Center of Missing and Exploited Children. He has been helping Shelly and he agrees to look at this and thinks it is connected. But he cannot do anything with it until the Independence Police put Sherry's profile into the National Crime Information Center. So Jerry makes a call to the police, but they tell him there is no point because the family ran off on their own. Matt Burtbeck gets in touch with Shelly around this time and really takes interest in this theory as well. It's all so perfectly connected. So what are the odds? On top of this, they find that Sharon's blood type is A negative. Henry Harvison had A positive blood and Frida had type O. This meant the couple could produce a child with A negative blood. Matt can also see the physical similarities between the photos of Sharon and Sh- and Sherry. I keep getting so confused with all these S names. <laughs> I know. It's a lot. There's so many S names. So I messed that up. It, Matt, Matt's seeing the similarities between the photos of Sharon and Sherry. He realizes around this time that he has two letters given to him by Jennifer Fisher. They were sent to her by Sharon Marshall. He asks Jerry if they can get DNA off of the stamps and test it against the Denman family. So everyone is pushing for the Independence Police to share Sherry's information and put it into the database. But still, they won't. And finally, Jerry Nance goes against protocol. He's like, screw it. I'm opening a file on her anyway. The Bodie Tech Lab is able to pull DNA from the stamps that Sharon Marshall had sent to Jennifer Fisher, but it's too degraded to do regular DNA testing, So, which is the nuclear DNA test. So they do need to do the mitochondrial DNA testing. Jerry requests DNA from one of Frida's sisters and the stamps are sent in. By September of 2003, there is some exciting news. The DNA of Sharon Marshall appears to be consistent with the DNA provided by the Denman family. It will take a bit longer, though, to get the definite results. Everyone from all sides feels a sense of closure coming. The Denman's able to find a piece of what happened to their missing family members, and the investigators in Sharon Marshall's case, they could finally find out her true identity. In May of 2004, investigators find that the Oklahoma City Police do have samples of Sharon's blood and hair from the time of her death. So now they can do the regular DNA testing and not just the mitochondrial DNA. So they use this and these samples are shipped to Bodie Tech for a stronger DNA test. Everyone who had been invested in this theory for over a year waited anxiously. When the final results are in, it's found that Sharon Marshall's DNA does not match the Denman family. She isn't Sherry Lynn, which you would think she was, like they thought she was. Oh my gosh, I know. It was a tough blow, but at least Jerry Nance has a DNA profile for Sharon Marshall, and it's admitted into the national database. Years pass everyone by, no leads come in, and the case of Sharon Marshall sits still. Sure, Franklin is on death row, but there was so much more to find out here. On top of this, Franklin was only ever convicted in the kidnapping of Michael Hughes. So while everyone just assumed he had murdered the little boy, there was really no closure, no confession, just an assumption of what happened. By 2011, it's been 21 years since Tanya Hughes, a.k.a. Sharon Marshall, a.k.a. Suzanne Davis, had been killed. 
Ashley Rodriguez, who works for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, takes on the duty of looking back into this case. So Ashley starts reaching out to people who worked on the case all those years ago. She makes contact with Joe Fitzpatrick and the Oklahoma City FBI Bureau. Both agree to help Ashley out. She organizes a case review meeting in Virginia during November of 2012. There's two FBI agents that come, Fitzpatrick flies into town, members of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit come in, NCIS, and multiple other detectives gather together to take another look at Sharon Marshall's case. The meeting concludes with the idea that talking with Franklin Floyd is the best start they've got coming back into this case. Ashley brings in Scott Lobb of the Oklahoma City FBI Bureau. In order to find out more about Sharon Marshall, he reads Matt Birkbeck's book, A Beautiful Child, and meets with the OG detective, Joe Fitzpatrick. Agent Lobb needs the best of the best by his side for his interview with Franklin, so he presents the case to Special Agent Nate Furr. Agent Furr also reads Matt's book, and the two get to investigating. They watch interrogation tapes, they go through file after file, and they learn Franklin's personality, preparing themselves for this interview. But this search that is supposed to last at least a few months gets cut short. Fitzpatrick is contacted for an investigation discovery documentary on the case. And this was soon after Lobb and Ferg start diving into Franklin. Everyone agrees that if the interrogation with Franklin isn't done quickly before Franklin has the chance to see the documentary, then he may never talk with them. They believe he will be feeling pretty cool, pretty infamous, and his ego after the show is made might cause him to lose any desire he may have to speak with police. So if they're going to take a shot at him, it's now or never. The agents head to the Union Correctional Facility... Agent Lobb plays bad cop dressed up in a nice business suit, and Agent Fur is playing good cop, casually dressed in a polo with a clean-cut beard. Franklin is less than pleased to be here talking with investigators. He has a chip on his shoulder for Fitzpatrick, Yancey, Cumega, even Matt Birkbeck. He is still claiming they all framed him those many years ago for the murder of Cheryl. He flips out about Matt's book, calling him the like anti-gay F-word, and he's saying the book is false. It paints Franklin in a bad light, which, side note, Matt met directly with Franklin for an interview when he was writing the book. Franklin was super pumped to be a part of it and had this false sense that Matt could help him and his conviction in some way, which is clearly not what Matt did because he had no reason to want to help Franklin. Everyone's interest here has always been about finding Sharon's identity. Franklin goes on and on about himself during this interview, about his life, how wronged he was by everyone who colluded together to lock him up. And if the detectives try to push him too hard in the direction he does not want to go, he will lose his temper. By the end of four interrogation days, investigators are able to get Franklin Floyd to admit Michael is dead. This happens after a photo of Michael is slid in front of Franklin. He screams, asking, why do you guys give a shit about this kid? He's dead. So Franklin at least confirms what everyone has already assumed. But Lobb and Fur don't get the confession they had hoped for. For that, they have to return to Franklin for more interrogation starting in August of 2014. By September 29th, they secure what they came for. 
The two agents had spent enough time with Franklin by this point to pick up when he's lying and when he's telling the truth. When he starts to speak the truth, his dramatics simmer down. He stares into the agent's eyes and almost seems as though he's focusing, trying to remember exact details. Franklin had taking, taken a liking to Nate Fur and was usually frustrated with Scott Lobb. They had him right where they wanted him because this was the plan all along. After multiple visits to death row, Franklin finally cracks, telling the detectives that after he kidnaps Michael, the boy was in hysterics. Michael wouldn't stop crying. He loved the family he had been with for the last four years. I mean, he went into Bean Home at age two. We don't really keep conscious memories from that age, so the Bean family is almost all he knows. Yeah. And, like, he did have visits with Franklin through that time, but the Beans are his family. Mm -hmm. He, I guess, keeps crying out for his mama, which he's referring to Merle Bean. It's at this point that Franklin draws a map, showing Lob and Fur where he drove to find a desolate area near a lake. During the confession, Franklin starts to cry. Matt Burtbeck describes him in his book as the most raw and exposed the detectives had ever seen him. They knew this was it. So Lobb slams his hands down on the table, screaming at Franklin to tell them what he did to Michael. Franklin was not expecting their reconnection to come with so much pushback from Michael. He said he knew he would be caught if he couldn't calm Michael down or get him to stop crying. I shot him twice in the back of the head to make it real quick. Franklin goes on to describe how he threw Michael out into the woods and drove away, discarding the gun out of his car window as he crossed a bridge. From here, he drove to that Wonder Bread factory where he abandons the principal's stolen truck. Franklin claims he loved Michael so much and that this is why he checks himself into the mental facility days later. Detective Lobb and Fur actually vet the map Franklin gives them and with the actual area, and it leads them to a desolate space. Surrounded by trees, and there's a lake, it seems to match. But there is a problem. The area is covered in wild hog tracks. If Michael's body was discarded here, the hogs would have gotten to him quickly. The only thing they had a chance to find was the bullet casings or any metal from his clothing. Searches were done, but nothing is ever found, and Michael's case is closed on August 3rd, 2015. But this confession isn't the only confession Scott Lobb and Nate Fur pull out of Franklin that day. On day one of interrogation, the first visit they ever make to him back in early 2014, Franklin just easy breezy shares the information that solves a decades-old mystery. Lob and Fur had brought up Sharon Marshall as that first day was coming to a close. Where did you get her? I met Sharon's mom back in North Carolina. She was a sex worker at the time. She didn't even have custody of her kids. And being the good Christian man I am, I agreed to marry her and help her gain back custody. At first, the investigators kind of think Franklin is messing with them. Years earlier, he had given up a name of a different sex worker he claimed to be Sharon's mom, and that whole story was made up. But for now, they roll with it. Okay, and this woman is who? Franklin tells them that her name is Sandra Brandenburg, and she knew him as Brandon Cleo Williams. This is an alias the FBI had never discovered in all their years investigating Franklin Floyd. 
Now they're really intrigued, and they ask Franklin the real name of Sandra's daughter. It's Suzanne Savakis. That's who Sharon is. Now they push Franklin a little more, asking where this Suzanne was born. And he doesn't even skip a beat when he tells them she had been born in Livonian, Michigan. Quickly, he blurts out that Suzanne wanted to go with him, though. He saved that little girl from a bad life. Which, like, obviously isn't true. I mean, her sisters, we'll see, didn't actually have the greatest life, but they didn't end up murdered by some guy who sexually abused them for their entire life. So I still think she would have been better off left with her mom. Most likely, obviously. So the detectives can't even begin to trust him until they verify any of what he just said. After day one concludes, the agents make a couple of calls. One to agents in North Carolina, asking them to search for a marriage license between a Sandra Brandenburg and a Brandon Cleo Williams. There's another call made to Agent Krebs in Michigan. She's asked to search for a birth certificate for Suzanne Savakis. By lunchtime on the second day of interrogation, the agents in North Carolina and Michigan had gotten back with lob and fur. The first call comes in from North Carolina and the agent had found a marriage certificate matching the names given. This is the first moment both of the agents feel like Franklin could have been telling them the truth. Fulfillment runs through their veins when Agent Krebs calls from Michigan confirming a birth certificate for Suzanne Marie Savakis, born in St. Mary's Hospital in Livonia, Michigan, on September 16, 1969, at 6.43 p.m. They did it. They found the identity of Sharon Marshall. And it was from him helping. Yeah. That's even more crazy. One day he just decided to tell them. And like I said, this was on the very first day of like of their interrogation. So the first time after all these years they go to talk to him, it was before he confessed to the murder of Michael or anything. Like they had to go back months later and get that out of him. Mm-hmm. But this he just offers up. Nice. So... <laughs> Who is Suzanne? Suzanne was born to 19-year-old Sandra Francis Chipman and 20-year-old Clifford Ray Savakis. The couple started dating in high school, and following graduation, they quickly marry. Clifford, who's also known as Cliff, attends college for a hot minute but decides to drop out, and soon he is drafted into the military. Off he goes to basic training, where he finds out his wife is pregnant. Sandra gives birth to their daughter, Suzanne, while Cliff is serving in Vietnam. He doesn't get to meet their baby until six months into her life. The family meets up in Hawaii on a break Cliff has, but he gets his heart broken. Sandra surprises him by asking for a divorce. He's not expecting this at the same time that he's meeting his baby daughter, so he begs Sandra to reconsider. He wants their family to stay together. She reluctantly agrees to give it a try, but as soon as Cliff is back off to Vietnam, she continues the affair that made her question their marriage in the first place. Within months, Cliff's dad informs him of the affair via letter. So he takes a three-week leave from the military and travels back to Michigan. While he's home, Sandra tells him that she is in love with another man named Dennis Brandenburg, and she is pregnant with his baby. So Cliff is obviously devastated. It's a bit of a shocker. But he knows that it's time for him to file for divorce. 
The baby is born before the divorce could be finalized, so Sandra gives her the last, the same last name as Cliff and Suzanne. It seems, like, weird that she would do that because, like, her other kids, she doesn't give them all the same last name. It seems only because her and Cliff were still married, but... We find out from this daughter, Allison, that Dennis Brandenburg is actually not her dad. She doesn't know who her real dad is, but Dennis is a black man and Allison is not. So she tells Matt later in her life that she knew Dennis could not be her dad, even when her mom tried to tell her that he was her real dad. The second child had been born in 1970. And when detectives found Suzanne's birth certificate, they had also found her sisters since they shared the same last name. So she still to this day doesn't know who her real dad is. I'm assuming Sandra was probably with more people than just Dennis. So she thought she probably wanted it to be his baby, but it was not. By 1971, Cliff is discharged from the army and moves back to Michigan, but Sandra is long gone now, back in North Carolina, married to Dennis Brandenburg and having her third baby, Amy Brandenburg. In 1972, Cliff makes a trip to North Carolina for a visit with his daughter, Suzanne. He leaves with a full heart, but one year later, he receives a letter from social services. Sandra is getting remarried after leaving Dennis Brandenburg, and she is asking Cliff to relinquish his parental rights so that her new husband could adopt the three girls. This letter came from social services because the girls had been taken out of Sandra's custody and put into the state's care. So the girls are in state care. She's now getting married to her new husband, who is Franklin Floyd, a.k.a. Brandon Clea Williams. So they're writing to Cliff and saying, like, her new husband wants to adopt your kids. Will you allow him to? And, like, that way the kids can stay together and, like, go back with their mom. Cliff considers this. He has no job. He's in his early 20s, and he hasn't really had the opportunity to parent Suzanne yet. He figures a married man with the means to care for her would be a better fit. He also doesn't want to separate the three sisters, like if he denies them, if they would stay in the system and get split up. So he agrees to let Brandon Cleo Williams, aka Franklin Floyd, adopt Suzanne when he marries Sandra. With that, Suzanne, Allison, and Amy are returned to the custody of Sandra and her new hubby in June of 1974. Sandra had met Brandon in Charlotte, North Carolina at a church gathering. She's excited when he tells her that he will help her get her daughters back from the state. So two weeks after meeting, they get married. Wow, that's fast. Too fast. I mean, if you did it and it like worked. You don't even know somebody. I know. Like if you have done that and it worked out for you, great. But I do not feel, I just do not feel like I personally could know someone in less than a year. Because what if you marry someone in two weeks, you're in like this honeymoon stage of the relationship and then you start finding out the things that bug you, but then you feel like trapped. True. But I feel like you're always going to be bugged about something. But I think it's easier when you know what bugs you and you accept it before marrying them (laughs) versus marrying them and then like finding out all this stuff. Maybe, maybe not. I know. Maybe you just stick it out. I don't know. Two weeks is a little quick. But they do get married, 
And of course, she doesn't know him very well, so she isn't pleased to find out he could only finish during sex if he was acting violent, like if he was choking her, holding her down, or even tying her down. So, like I said, might want to get to know someone a little better. Red flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not good. So, I mean, if it's like consensual, but I think she's she's frustrated because it's like every time. A little weird. She's like, okay, this is a little much. Like we can do other things. She figures, though, he's good to her daughters and she was glad he helped her get custody back. Brandon became the closest with Suzanne, who took a liking to him, and he appreciated how she never disobeyed. Which is like sad to me because I'm assuming he was probably sexually abusing her. Right. And her because her sister remembers, like, Suzanne always being his favorite. So soon after getting married, the couple moves with the three girls to Missouri. Sandra had just given birth to an infant boy before meeting Franklin. Before this move, she takes her son to her neighbor's home, telling her that she cannot take her baby with her. The neighbor takes in the six-week-old baby, known then as Philip, and names him Stephen Patterson. He had written a message to author Matt Burtbeck on Facebook telling him that he believes he is Suzanne's brother. He had read the book and his mom had showed him some stuff after his dad passed away, um, like regarding his adoption. And he wanted answers from Matt to see if he is connected to this family. He would later on take a DNA test and he confirms his relation. He is Sandra's youngest son adopted into the family that took him in North Carolina. So it's just her neighbor. Like Sandra shows up one day and is like, I'm moving with my new husband. Can you take my baby? Oh, so he was born before they were married. She marries Franklin within two weeks, but she has her baby like her baby's six weeks old. That that guy's lucky. Yeah, I'm sure he's very grateful. He got dropped off at the neighbor's house and adopted into their family. So from Missouri, Sandra and Brandon move with her three girls to Dallas, Texas, where Sandra is arrested. She says that she's arrested on a fraudulent check charge, but her family later finds out she was possibly arrested on a solicitation charge. She is taken to the local jail where she spends about a month behind bars. While she's there, her three daughters are living with her husband, Brandon, a.k.a. Franklin. And it's while Sandra is in jail that Franklin takes off with Suzanne. Allison remembers being dropped off on the steps of a church with her younger sister, Amy. It's a faint memory because Allison was only around four years old at this time. But after Franklin places the two little girls on those steps, he takes off with Suzanne, who is only five years old. When Sandra gets out of jail, she's able to pick up her two youngest girls, telling her family that her husband Brandon took off with Suzanne. Everyone wants to get Suzanne back, but Sandra doesn't want to accept any help. Allison says that after Sandra picks them up, she makes a trip up to Oklahoma where she attempts to sell them. She had read somewhere that there were these underground groups who would purchase your kids if you could not take care of them. Allison ends her statement on this by saying, but I guess she couldn't sell us. This is written in Matt's book and Allison like remembers all of this stuff and a lot of people feel this way about Sandra, including investigators, like they feel like she made some really bad choices um, after Suzanne's gone. 
But in the documentary, I will note here, Sandra says that this isn't the case. Sandra just says she was in a really hard time in her life and wasn't able to take care of her kids and like didn't have resources. So those are kind of the two competing sides. But I will say the majority of people who have worked on this case have not gotten close with Sandra or really taken to her side of things. So did she go to the police when she knew Suzanne was kidnapped? No. Does she say why? Nope. So I think this is why most people in this case, investigators, family, they are very frustrated with her. But I know a lot of her other kids have defended her and that she on that Netflix documentary says she was just going through a hard time. I've like gone through this more on the side of like Matt's book, what Allison said, what the investigators said, all of that. But I wanted to note that Sandra kind of says, you know, she defends herself in the documentary. Just wanted to put that in there. So after she tries to sell her daughters, she returns to Dallas, Texas, and she goes into a police station. She's telling the officers that she has these two daughters and she cannot keep them. The police are aren't sympathetic and they tell Sandra she needs to leave their station and she has to take her kids with her. So she does with no other choice. I mean, I get like where they're coming from. Like you have to take care of your kids, but also if someone does come into the police station, maybe just take the kids. Well, yeah, I give them some resources or call like, you know, a social worker to help. Yeah, if they're there saying they can't take care of them, you don't want to tell them like, well, sorry, you have to. And then they like take their kids and sell them. Literally. So she obviously takes them. And throughout Allison's life, she would ask her mom about her older sister, Suzanne. But she was always told that Suzanne was kidnapped. It's not her business and she needs to leave it alone. Many members of Sandra's family think she knew Brandon, a.k.a. Franklin, was the one like would be taking her daughter like when she went to jail she knew brandon took her daughter oh like they talked about it yeah like she just knew he had her and she was fine with it but he didn't want to wait for her to get out of jail i don't know it's very (laughs) odd (laughs) yeah like how long was she in for she was in for a month a month and he they were married and he couldn't wait for her to get out yeah So I'm not sure what happened there. Nah, he just bounced with the kid. I don't know. But I mean, she never did anything, though. She didn't do anything because she couldn't even take care of her other ones, probably. Yeah, seems that she didn't care, but I'm not her, so I don't know. Allison even remembers social services offering to help Sandra on top of her grandparents offering and her uncle. But because Sandra refused to help, Allison believes there's a secret there, a reason her mom never wanted to talk about it. Sandra ends up having seven kids in total. After Suzanne is kidnapped, she goes on to have Jonathan, Jeffrey, and Dorothy. So she has Suzanne, her two daughters, and then the boy. So, you know, Suzanne is taken, the boy was given away, so she has seven kids total, but actually has five of them with her okay by age 10 allison had heard the whispers of her mom being a sex worker and soon after this realization she is sent to the jackson field girls home specialized in treating children experiencing abuse and neglect after she leaves the girls home she gets pregnant and she becomes a mother herself 
in this time of her life, she now can never understand how her mom was able to so easily forget Suzanne. Allison calls her mom in 2014 after reading Matt's book. So she calls and she asks her mom why she never looked for her sister. And like, why didn't you try to go and get her back? And when Sandra only responds by hanging up the phone, Allison decides to cut contact with her mom from there forward. And this is pretty much how it seems Sandra would respond to these questions. I don't know if it's just because it made her sad or because she knew she was out there and never did anything and was like maybe ashamed she never did anything. Yeah. So the family had been made aware of Suzanne's fate after Agent Lobb and Fur confirmed Franklin's story. First, they called Joe Fitzpatrick to tell him the good news. He was stunned and honestly in disbelief. He thought he would die without ever finding out Sharon Marshall's true identity. The agents then fly to Michigan to meet Agent Krebs, the one who confirms Suzanne's birth certificate with them. And she takes them to the door of Clifford Savakis' home. They knock and his wife answers, lets the officers inside, and they start talking with Cliff. Cliff had gone on to have two more children, and the couple was packing up their Missouri home to make the move out to Seattle, Washington, so they could be closer to their kids. They asked Cliff if he had a child from a previous relationship. He's a little confused, but he's like, yeah, her name is Suzanne. Cliff hadn't heard much of Suzanne since he was asked to give up his parental rights. He had no idea of the story detectives were about to tell him. By the end of the conversation, he's devastated, asking them to confirm. So that's my daughter? And then he agrees to give his DNA. They want to obviously match her via DNA to this family. Yeah. From here, investigators fly to Newport News, Virginia, and knock on the door of Sandra Brandenburg's trailer. Her youngest daughter, Suzanne's youngest sister, who she never met, answers the door, this is Dorothy, and lead detectives into the living room where Sandra sits, hooked up to an oxygen tank. They pull out a photo of Franklin Floyd and ask, do you know him? Her reply is, yes, that's Brandon C. Williams. He stole my daughter. Agent Fur is so pissed off he can barely look at Sandra because he's wondering how did she never look for Suzanne. She clearly knew Franklin had ran off with her daughter, so why was nothing done? Agent Lobb is also frustrated, but he tells Sandra what became of Suzanne's life. Both Sandra and Dorothy start to cry, but I'll note here that Agent Fur does not believe Sandra's tears. They ask for DNA to confirm this is Sandra's daughter, and she agrees. So it would be frustrating because, like, that's the first thing she says to them is, like, yes, he stole my daughter. Well, if you reported that, they would have known way back, way back when they caught Franklin Floyd, like, they would have known her real identity all those years ago. Yeah. If they, you know, she was a missing person. They could have looked in the database. Because she would have reported it. And then, I mean, I guess she knew him as Brandon C. Williams. So I guess it wouldn't just like directly tie to Franklin Floyd. But I feel if she reported him, dots could have been connected. Yeah, for sure. So they get her DNA and it is confirmed for a fact that Suzanne is tied to both of her parents, Cliff and Sandra. 
So the news had spread to Sandra's family and people are calling the agents with questions about what happened to Suzanne. Sandra's brother Jim was especially heartbroken. He's one of the few people who knew little Suzanne well before she was taken. He wanted to find her all of these years, and the agents direct him to read the book for more insight into Suzanne's case. The agents tell the family they are almost positive the man who kidnapped Suzanne also killed her. They had found out that Franklin did own a red pickup truck. Remember, the car he was driving at the time he hits, at that point, who's known as Tanya. Well, I said he hits. She gets hit by a car. He's driving like a blue car and it doesn't match because it was a red vehicle that hit her. They find out he did own a red pickup truck. It was only sold one month earlier to a close friend. So they believe this was planned as Franklin knew it would be used to hit Tanya, a.k.a. Sharon, a.k.a. Suzanne, from behind, killing her on that tragic day. So they are finally able to tie him to a red vehicle. Between the two books, Matt Birkbeck wrote, the adoptive mom of Suzanne's third and final child writes to him. This is the daughter that Franklin adopts out in New Orleans after they leave Tampa, Florida. The woman who wrote Mac is married to Fresne, and she's nervous to be reaching out, but after following some online forums surrounding the book, she's more nervous that fans might find her daughter Megan. They had written online that they are on a mission to find Sharon, aka Suzanne's, youngest child who was adopted in New Orleans. So people read this book and then when that first book is written, the identity of Suzanne is still not known. So all these people online are try- like getting groups together and trying to find out more information. And Mary DeFresne starts getting really freaked out because her and her friends were following these groups and they see uh-huh. that these groups are saying like, we're going to find that adopted kid. Like it- she was adopted in New Orleans. Like we're going to like track her down. And Mary didn't want that to happen. Okay. Basically, she meets them through a lawyer's office in New Orleans that contacts her. She had tried to get pregnant for a while. She's not able to. And then this lawyer contacts her saying this couple is looking to adopt their baby. And she meets them. It's Clarence and Tanya Hughes. Michael Hughes was there as well because that's Sharon slash Suzanne's second child. So he's there. Mary remembers Sharon really not talking, just looking at the ground, and she would just play with Michael and kind of be in her own world. Mary and her husband agree to pay $7,000 for the adoption. This would cover three months of living and um, the hospital costs. At this point, Sharon, well, she's known as Tanya at this point, Tanya had never been to the gynecologist yet, and Franklin was saying she was due in about nine weeks. So, on August 11th, 1989... Your birthday. uh, My birthday. Well, the 11th, not the year. Yeah, not the year. But me and Megan share a birthday six years apart to the day. Great birthday Megan has. So, this is the day Tanya's water breaks, and Megan is born at 4.49 p.m. When Clarence leaves the room... Mary, you know, has the baby and she asks Tanya, do you want to see her? Tanya says no. And Mary says, call us if you need anything. I like will always be here for you. 
but she could tell that Tanya was super sad. She kind of had this like sneaking suspicion that Tanya wasn't in like a good relationship and that her much older husband was abusive. They take the baby and they do have to meet about a week later to sign all of the paperwork. Tanya and Clarence have six months to change their mind, but Mary never hears from them again. Mary had been contacted years later, though, asking if she wants to adopt Michael Hughes. She says she's interested, but needs to know why. Like, what's the story? So they tell her everything. How Tanya was killed, Franklin's on the run, yada, yada. At this point, Michael was living with the Beans. Mary is mortified by the story. She wanted Michael, but she also knew the Beans wanted to adopt him. So she decided it wouldn't be kind to remove him from their home. But she was open to meeting with them and like creating um, some contact between the two siblings. And then she doesn't hear from them for a while until police come knocking on her door after the kidnapping. They tell Mary what happened, how Franklin took Michael right out of his school and they, you know, ask her questions about the, the adoption, what happened, what she knew. And then they tell her that they are concerned Franklin was heading in this direction. They're worried he would come get Megan too. And they want to go pick up Megan from school. That would be freaky. It would be terrifying. I probably wouldn't send her to school until he was caught. Same. So she's extremely relieved when he is caught six weeks later. In April 2017, Cliff writes to Matt about his daughter, Suzanne. Quote, Mr. Birkbeck, I guess that now, two years after learning the horrific fate of my daughter, Suzanne, I feel I am ready to speak with you about it. I did note that you were careful in assigning blame to Suzanne's parents, and I am grateful that you did not choose to sensationalize and further victimize my ex-wife and I. There's enough guilt and suffering to go around. I should tell you that I have been in contact with Mary DeFresne in New Orleans, and I had a promising conversation with my granddaughter, Megan. She seems to be a very good person, and I am pleased to begin a new relationship with her. At least one positive thing can come of all of this sorrow. I have told my wife that I may get past the heart-wrenching sadness your book brought me, but I will never get over it. After two years filled with many sleepless nights and sessions with my minister, prayer group, and psychologist, I have began to own up to this dark chapter in our lives. I look forward to talking with you, and I thank you for your work in drawing attention to these unforgivable crimes against so many children. Sincerely, Cliff Savakis. This same year, Matt and Megan had planned a service for having Suzanne's headstone changed. He thought Cliff's note was sincere, so they agreed to invite Suzanne's biological dad to the service. However, her mom, Sandra, is not in attendance. Cliff would meet his granddaughter, Megan, here, and they have become close now. She does not have a relationship with Sandra. So again, just like Megan's not in touch with her. No one asked her to come to this service. So it just seems like there's something there. People are a little like suspicious of how things went down. Yeah. It was June 3rd, 2017 when the headstone is changed and a service is held. In attendance is a pastor named Keith. Cliff Savakis comes. Jim and Cindy Chipman, which is Sandra's brother and his wife. 
Megan comes, Mary and Dean DeFresnick, her adoptive parents, Joe Fitzpatrick, Lynn Clemens, Mark Mark Yancey, Ed Cumega, Meryl and Ernest Bean, Karen Parsley, a friend from Passions, Jennifer Fisher, her best friend from high school, Scott Lobb, and a few others, people who were involved in the case. They all gather. And the headstone now reads, Suzanne Savakis, devoted mother and friend. There are roses carved in the corners, and in the middle, a photo of Suzanne. It's her high school graduation photo, in color, printed onto the marble. During the ceremony, Suzanne's daughter Megan is eight months pregnant. She names her son Michael after her older brother. Oh, yeah. Because this is Michael Hughes' younger sister. But we think of Michael as a kid because he was kidnapped and murdered when he was six. Hmm. So that same day, Cliff Savakis returns to the gravesite a few hours after the ceremony ended. He wanted some time alone to speak with the daughter he barely got to know. That's so cute. It makes me tear up. <laughs> Pastor Keith ends his eulogy with a quote from Karen Parsley. This was the friend of Sharon's, a.k.a. Suzanne's, from Passions. Her and a fellow dancer, Lavornia Watkins, had gone to Susan's grave after Franklin was convicted of Cheryl's murder. While there, Karen had said, quote, I hope one day we find out who you really were. I hope one day I'll know your real name and I'll meet your real family. And I can tell them I once knew a girl who tried to save herself and her son. And I can tell them that I was your friend. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I also produce, write, and edit this podcast. I'm joined every week by our co-host, Alicia Jenkins. Our palette cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters. And all our music is created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Follow us on social, visit our website, truecrimeexposedpodcast.com, and give us a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it after my disturbing tea review. Thank you. Hi, my name is Charlie Waters, and today we're going to be talking about a a baby elephant, one of my favorite animals. Did you know baby elephants are called calves, just like cows? They weigh 200 pounds when you're born. That's like as much as my dad weighs. You can't even lift a baby elephant when it's born. Baby elephants don't see very good when they're born. But like humans, they can recognize their mom by touch, smell, and sound. Did you know their moms have a baby in their belly for 22 months? That's almost two years. My mom says that's way too long. Bye. Have a great day. You know I've mentioned their organization multiple times on this podcast, but because they're mentioned so often in today's episode, I'm circling back around to them. Visit missingkids.org to find the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. While there, you can donate, you can find out more information about what they're doing, all the amazing things they've done to help children who are in bad situations. They are 
probably one of my favorite organizations, someone who I think is doing really incredible work. On their front page, they say, we lead the fight to protect children, creating resources for them and the people who keep them safe. This is amazing to me. And if you're going to donate somewhere, this is definitely an organization to do so. Go get involved.